up till he's five in the morning. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. Are you up until five? Yeah. Well, five East Coast time. East five Coast time. time. Yeah. Wow. I've got my time. Because we, it is to the case, guys. There are people that stay with us, go to bed, and they get up and they call us. <laughs> I used wow. to. I used to do that. Uh, you know, I'd wake up sometimes and. Larry King would be on, or actually Ray Bream. Mm-hmm. And well, remember before that, back in the seventies, Jay Lacey at a station here locally called KPFK would be doing shows between two and three in the morning, and sometimes you would have a guest on. And this is about the time we started collecting, so we would literally set our alarm clocks for a Saturday morning at two p.m. Get up, record whatever he was doing, and then go back to sleep. I remember when he had Dick York on, and uh, that started at midnight, I think. And we recorded that. I just heard that one a couple of days ago. We found it. And and, uh, and we called in. I had we forgotten had, that. We didn't have any contact with him. I don't, we, we didn't even know he was around. And and, uh, and they found him on uh, for Jay's show. And then we got no, not Jay's show. It was Roy Tuckman. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And eventually he came out to speak to us at Spurback. Mm-hmm. Now, you and Walden were doing what other people didn't do, recording these interviews. It just blows me away that Walden, when he was, how old were you when you were doing the Ray Bream interviews, Walden? Oh, well, I finally got a good enough, good enough tape recorder that I could trust about in 83, so I was, you know, I was 17. About 17. Now, you guys, I, I hate the term you guys, but you really are three guys. Um, you somehow recognized that these were important enough not only to listen to but to save how come but i think a lot of collectors did that they all a lot of the collect because that's sort of what collectors do they collect and and there are a lot of radio people bob lyons has every same time same station show from 1971 to 74 and god bob collected tv even he didn't necessarily videotape until later but even the audio stuff of stuff that was interesting to him, he would record it audio, audio and he's got copies of tons of stuff because well, he, he recognized that that somebody should collect this stuff because who knows if the networks are going to do it. And collectors are notorious for doing that stuff. The guy that we replaced, uh, Woody, Woody, I I think this is a true story. He I don't born. believe it. <laughs> I okay, don't believe this story. Well, okay, okay. <laughs> it, may, it may be true. It may be. There was a marathon going on. Uh, somebody was playing the radio it shows. KPFK is one of KPFK's marathons in the 70s. It was a six or 12-hour marathon. Yeah. And his wife, Connie, was about to deliver their child. And she said, Woody, we got to go to the hospital. <laughs> and they, he allegedly said, hang on, the show's not over yet. <laughs> And then, and then the follow-up question is, did she? Yes, she did. Yeah, yeah, she did. Everything was cool. Everything was they're cool. Still married. Well, that's, a, that's a serious collector. And they're still married. <laughs> that is a serious collector. I, I, we really need to find out if that's a really true story, because it's a great one. I hope it's true. Well, maybe I don't hope it's true. He, well, Woody also tells the story, when he was a child, of listening to I Love a Mystery when it was on, that this is not the New York run, this is the Hollywood run back in 1939 or 1940. And he was a child. He'd have been 10. Yeah. Because I think he was born in 28 or 29. And, his par- of course, his parents didn't want him to listen to the show that late at night. 
So he would sneak a radio uh, into bed with him and put it under the pillow so that the parents couldn't tell that he was listening to Oliver Mystery. Well, there was a scene where things got very exciting, and he literally, I don't know how he did it, but he bit through the power cord. <gasps> oh, my God. And, yeah. and shocked himself to no end. I probably couldn't taste the food for a year. I don't know. No, and uh, we never got around to ask him to stick it out his tongue, you know, to yeah. check it out. So That'll blow uh, out yeah, your feelings. I would never have done that. No, I wouldn't either. No. So if that story is true, that, that that's two that, that he told. No, I'm sure there are a lot of hypocritical stories going around. <laughs> that's a serious listener. When you oh, have yeah. somebody who's, who's excited enough that he's going to bite down on something and chooses the cord instead yeah. of the pillow. Wow. Exactly. I love a mystery. Carlton E. Morris. You have spent some time with Carlton E. Morris. Yes. Uh, he was. He was amazing. He was one of those people where we, you know, afterward we turned and said, "God, can you believe that we actually got Carlton E. Morris?" Because it, it's funny. I think. Giant. I think the first time we actually got a chance to meet him briefly was at a Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters luncheon, and uh, this is like 1984, and we got in touch with him and I wrote him because they, they did a whole afternoon on him and all, all of his all, all of his friends with worked him. with him were there yeah it was a great afternoon so I wrote him because I wanted to have him down this was the second Spurdback convention and he wrote me back and said I'd love to come down he was up in San Francisco area I still have that note by the way um, it, I can't, my screen reader won't read it because it was handwritten I think on the other hand maybe it wasn't maybe it was typed. If it was typed, I can read it. In any event, I've, I saved all of his correspondence because we corresponded a lot over the years when he had been writing his books, etc. And he used that same old typewriter that he used to write the shows to type. Um, and I've got it on uh, A1 Detective Agency letterhead. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in any event, he said, I'd love to come down for the convention, which was November of 85. And he did. And we put him up in the hotel, Spurdback did. And we got a chance to interview him. And not that it's not that necessarily. Uh, I was going to say I wasn't. I'm not. I'm usually not nervous when I talk to radio people because I realized long ago, and having had, a, had the chance to meet a lot of them, you know, that they put their shoes on the same way you and I do. Now but you I'm, were nervous talking to me, of course. Now uh, I will continue. Uh, now. Uh, <laughs> It isn't this. It, it, it's not a big deal talking to them. Now, I certainly um, I'm in awe of the work that they did, but they're they were and still are primarily, as far as I'm concerned, people just like we are. Um, but there are some that you still, especially if you love their work, you still walk in going, "Wow!" Well, you admire what they I, did. you admire what they did, and I and I thought, what's it going to be like to talk to Carlton Morris? And again, within about five minutes. It was as if I'd known him for 20 years. He was very down to earth, very accommodating. He said, "What do you? What would you like? What do you need from me?" No ego there, at all. And uh, we uh, knew Carlton for the last eight years or so of his life, to the point where, when the books came out, we would call him and and actually we talked to their his people because he was doing book signings all over. But he did our radio show. He did Spurvec. He did Bob Lyons show he did Ray Breams the first year he was down to plug Killer at the Wheel in 1987. Eventually in 1991, John and I and Randy Scretvet 
And Jerry Williams. And Jerry Williams drove up to his house, interviewed him, took pictures of the house, took pictures of, gee, everything, the place where he worked, because uh, he had signed a deal that after he was gone, they could demolish his house and build a resort. He sold it. Now, they didn't expect him to live as long as he lived. Was this Coca-Cola company? I can't I think so. I think so, yeah. But, I mean, he lived into his 90s. They, he made that deal like in 84, and he lived another eight or nine years. And so they began eventually to build around him. And so this wonderful house where you could look down over the tops of 300 feet redwood trees, was the, the view was pretty much unobstructed except if you looked off to the side, you might see a swimming pool or other things that they were building around him. But still, they, they couldn't do any demolishment of the house until he was gone. And so the uh, the day the weekend we were up there, we took we took pictures of everything. Uh, he had a fireplace that was a walk-in fireplace. It was huge. You could walk in literally to the fireplace. It le- it, it kept the whole house warm. And, and he, at the age of eighty mid eighties, was lifting these huge wooden planks and dropping them into the fire firewood. I mean, yeah, he was Amazing. really physically still with it and, and mentally as well. I and always I mean, can't cancer got him at the end, but I mean, he was still very much with it. My goodness, I always had this image that he was somehow frail, not not a robust person that you're describing to me. Well, he, oh, sound, he, he sounded kind of frail near the end. Uh, he sounded stereotypically old. Yes. But he wasn't. Yes, that's it. He was a big, burly guy. Did um, he? And, he, and he, didn't, he never really, he sounded a bit more burly if, if that's the correct word to use, in the 60s, because we've got interviews with him in 61, too. But but he was... He always had a kind of a halting way of speaking. Uh-huh. That was, I think that's the way he spoke. But it was much more apparent when he was older, when he, when he actually sounded a little older, when he was getting into his 80s. The few times I have heard him speak or have heard recordings of him have been when he was older, and he sounded more and more like Grandfather Barber. Right. From One Man's Family. Did he talk with you about I Love a Mystery, One Man's Family, all of the shows that he did? Did he talk to you at all about favorites? Yeah, he... I think his favorite really was One Man's Family. He enjoyed doing I Love a Mystery, but I think he really liked getting involved and getting into the characters' heads and, and putting characters in and watching them interact with other characters. I think he liked that best. I have read in a couple of places that one man's family, the Barber family, was not necessarily, he may have said this in one of the interviews that I heard, it was not necessarily a mirror of his own family, but it, it, the, the characters were, it, they evolved from his family, that they resembled his personal family. Mm-hmm. Did that come through to you too? Yeah, I think so. I mean, not, not exactly, but he sort of took characters from people, family and people he knew when he was younger. Uh-huh. Because uh, he, he was a newspaper guy first. In the late 20s, eventually, he began to, you know, get involved with regard to radio. Uh-huh. And he was involved in radio in the early 30s, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34. And uh, unfortunately, none of those shows exist. But some of the shows he did back then, he, he renamed, and like, for instance, uh, Adventures by Morris, which is a show that was syndicated and, and aired in 44, actually was on in 32, 33, and he called it Mysteries by Morris. And ah. he just recycled 
some of those stories. And I don't yeah. know. I don't think they were. I don't know that they were exact recycles. I think he may have updated. Becky did a little bit because there are there are World War II mentions in the forty four mm. version that obviously would not have made sense in thirty two, thirty three, thirty four. I truly just dusted them out mm -hmm. and and put them back. Yes. Isn't that interesting? I have well, a couple of more names on my list here, people you have either before, interviewed. Before we go to that, oh, sorry, before we go, go to that, there's an unusual story that I've never really heard attributed to any other writer, which which Carlton talks about a lot, and that is when he was writing One Man's Family, and maybe to some extent I'll have a mystery, he would, you know, he'd go to, he'd get to bed around 9.30 after doing a hard day's work, you know, he'd have his dinner, and his wife would just say, okay, time to go to bed. Boom, he's in bed, asleep, up again 4.30 the next morning, and writing. And he would go and write for one or two hours and get completely immersed in the character, and it was as if he were in a trance. And the next thing he would know, he'd be, he'd come out of it, and the show was already written. He had, he'd have no memory of what he'd had actually written, but there would be the pages in the typewriter, a complete script written. And he said that happened to him basically every day without any, any real knowledge of how it got to be that way. The, the words just came, and they were there. And he very rarely had to do any type of refinement uh, for his scripts. That is astounding. He actually lived the scenes he was creating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they wound up on paper. Isn't that incredible? Thank you. Yeah. John, that was a great story. Thank you. And I almost trounced on it. George Burns. George no, George Burns. Burns never went into a trance. <laughs> no, that <laughs> no, we know didn't. of. Did you interview him? Is that correct? We, no, we didn't interview him. We wanted to. We never got to do that. We met him in 19, I think, 92 or 93. Whatever uh, it was that Gracie came out. He, okay, yeah, that's true, because he had a book called Gracie that he put out. And what we wanted to do was get together and have him sign some books, which we did, and then take them to the Spurdback convention. And so we would we went to his office. This is he had like thirty minutes and then he had to go catch a plane and go to New York. And so we walked into the the uh, office building, went up into the elevator, opened up the door of the elevator, turned down the corridor and smelled cigar smoke. <laughs> and we thought, Wow, he does smoke those things. And we walked into his office and said hello and chatted with him for a while. And Irving Fine never offered Irving us a margarita. What? He never offered us a margarita. No. Or or a martini. Or a martini. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. Um. Sometimes they're just not wait, worth waiting for, John. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, but George Burns was on one side of the office, and Irving Fine was on the other side. Okay. And we got a chance to talk with him for a while. Never got a chance no. to interview him. Who was Irving Fine, Larry? Irving Fine was, at that time, George Burns' manager. He had been Jack Benny's manager prior to that. In fact, he had been Jack Benny's publicity agent even earlier. So he represented, represented both Benny and Burns for many, 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 many years. Irving, 99 now, by the way. About to say, he's just turned yeah. 99, yeah. yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah, amazing. Uh, amazing. He was smoking a cigar when you went in? Not Irving Fine, but George Burns, yes. No, George Burns. <laughs> of course, George Irving Burns. Could have, Irving could have been smoking one. We don't know. Cause yeah, because we didn't see him. We didn't know who was smoking it. We just assumed it was George Burns. I've always had such a warm spot in my little heart for George Burns. I just love that man to pieces. I was so sad when he died. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we yeah. All, we all have to, but 
it's just so sad when it happens to mm. someone who's so special to me. Willard Waterman, The Great Gildersleeve. I think we met Willard Waterman first at a Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters meeting, and after that, he would always come up from across the room, wherever he was, and come up and say hello. Always, really? always, always, always. And then, of course, at the Spiritback Conventions or later at Reps or, uh, was it Principal Time Radio? Yeah, I guess. He would always come up and, and say hello. He was just a nice, nice man. And uh, I don't remember whether we actually, I don't think we ever interviewed him on the show. I know Bob and Barbara did. They interviewed him along with Bob Bruce and one other person, three, Tyler McVeigh, all in the same afternoon. That was a pretty good show. And, I've uh, always had the sense in my head that Willard Waterman was a very warm and personable person. He was. Yes, he was. I was on yeah. target. What's that? One of the first... What did you say? I'm sorry, Patricia. I said I, I was on target then. Yes, you were. Yes. I remember when what the year that we did our comedy convention, 87. It was 1987, and we did a Great Gildersleeve recreation. And that Saturday afternoon, we had done the rehearsal for the recreation, and Leonard Malton, who was uh, heavily involved with Amer of um, t uh, Oh, God. Entertainment this week. Entertainment tonight was there. And I forgot how we got in touch with him. But oh, no, he came he to a Spurback meeting. That's how we got yeah. in touch with him. He'd been a member, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So he, he brought his crew down and basically filmed a lot of stuff that was going on throughout the convention for for use as part of a, uh, a couple minutes on Entertainment Tonight. So he, he needed some fill time, and so he figured, oh, I'll interview with the blind guy. So... Um, so we did a couple of minutes with him, and then he, he interviewed, uh, I think, Tom Price, who did the Fibber McGee Molly book, and Willard Waterman, and several other people. And then he shot a lot of the film on the recreation and did a nice five or ten minute segment on entertainment this week, as it turned out. Well, I think, if, I'm, if my memory is correct, uh, for whatever reason, our recording of both the rehearsal. And the recreation was just so-so. It had a low-level line hum. And I don't know why, but we knew he had re he recorded it at all. So we called him after the convention and said, would you be willing to copy what you have, all of it, onto Open Reel for us? Or cassette, I don't remember what, what, what format it was. And he did, and that's, that's what went out in the Spiritback Library. And the quality was much nicer than what we had, because we had, for whatever reason, we had that hum. I don't know how that came about. So, yeah, he was very nice to do that for us. And later on, of course, when he wrote his book, The Great American Broadcast, we were able to, to he, he, he took it and had somebody record um, the draft for us. It took about nine or ten cassettes. Um, I don't know that he recorded all of it for us, but he recorded those sections he wanted us to go back and proof. And we did. And uh, eventually, you know, we got mentioned in the book, which was nice. And then eventually the National Library Service for the Blind recorded it. So we have a copy of it now. But he, he's the only person that was that thought enough of, of, of the fact that it would be difficult for us to proof anything unless we had audio. And so, yeah, he had somebody record it for us on the cassette. 
Yeah, we've stayed in contact all these years. We had him on the show several times. He and, hosted uh, our show when we went when we yeah. did our cruise. Uh, he hosted the show for a week. Mm-hmm. And we, as John said, we've had him on as guests. Uh, and of course, times. he he later, of course, did the narration for the Disney Treasures, which is a, really a, a DVD set, several DVD sets. I mean, a lot of them of the various archival things that Disney released, uh, released, audio and video, and he would literally do all the narration. He so, also wrote the uh, Smithsonian article yeah, that, that so, featured Spurred back, back in the 80s. So I've, I've stayed in touch with him through Disney for years, and I saw him briefly at the Norman Corwin 100th birthday party here a couple of months ago. So he's been a longtime friend for a number of years, just a, a terrific individual, he and his whole family. Did you go to the Norman Corwin birthday party? I did, yes. Oh, I love it. Tell me about it. Norman Corwin's I mean, 100th birthday party. I mean, everybody imaginable who was a friend pretty much was there, and uh, Peggy Weber and, and California Artist Radio Theater did a special uh, salute to Norman with a lot of the things that he had written, and there were just a number of actors and actresses on stage. I can't remember the names right now without looking them up, but, I mean, they, they did excerpts of a number well, of... Norman people. Lloyd was one of the Norman Lloyds in his 90s. Yeah. And... and uh, Norman and, and uh, Kaplan, Marvin Kaplan, Marvin Kaplan, yeah, and Howard and Hal Cantor, sure, wonderful writer, funny, funny, funny man, a lot of people just, and it was absolutely wonderful. Oh, well, um, um, Walden, you interviewed her. Um, okay, uh, you interviewed her on July, or on whenever it was, a couple of days after the fact. Marsha Hunt. Marsha Hunt. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I think cause I think the uh, the deal was they did that uh, thing on Saturday. Right. That John went to, and Norman's birthday was actually on Monday, and that's and I did I recorded Marsha like an hour before the like, the show. And but Patricia never forgiven me. Actually, on uh, Norman's birthday, guys, mm-hmm. Janet threw the party out of her house. Yeah, at Waldo. Oh, did she? Yes, and she wanted me to come. Yeah, but I I had to turn it down because I I already promoted for six months doing a live Norman Corman birthday special for seven hours. Wow! And Patricia never forgiven me that I should have just dumped the show and gone to Norman birthday party. Uh, I I didn't necessarily use the word dump the show. <laughs> <laughs> I thought um, shipping pre-recorded shows to Texas to have them run from Texas would have been an okay thing to do. Right. Um, because all these anniversaries come around again. Every year we have one of everything, but you only have one 100th birthday That's for the one one. But he didn't listen to me. So. Well, well Walden, I think you should go to Janet's house now to make <laughs> up for it. I think she would want me, I think she would love to have me over. You know? <laughs> do it now, Walden. You say it, but you won't. Uh, I know it. <laughs> I know. Okay, you guys got a Janet Waldo story? Sure. Well, go ahead, then. Tell me. You said sure, John. I figured you had something. Oh, I thought Walden had a story. No, no, no. no, 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 no. You had a Oh, oh. Do you have a, Wald, uh, a Janet Waldo story? Nothing in particular. I mean, she was a terrific person. Mm-hmm. Nothing that really stands out. She was just a lot of fun to talk to. How about Norman Corwin? You guys, you guys have done so much with Norman over the last 30 years. Any Norman Corwin stories? Well, I remember we, we, we literally talked about his early life on one of our shows, 
and his newspaper days and early days in radio. Uh, that was a lot of fun, and we, we had dinner with him one night. I, it was a Chinese restaurant. I can't remember which one. And then we went back to his place, and we talked about the shows that he did, and he had them all written out. So he literally on a list. Sat, sat down and recorded all the shows that he'd done, that he had, uh, onto a tape, and I've still got that tape to this day with him reading it. With comments about the shows, the ones he liked, the one he didn't like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you will and play that one day soon? Were there too. What's that? You'll play that one day soon? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It sounds we like a wonderful interview. We, he knew we were recording for our benefit. I don't know if he knew necessarily that we were recording for broadcast. So we probably would. We probably should ask him first. Well, no, I, I think he did. He did tell me that it was okay if Patricia ever asked. Okay, I see. There, yeah. see. Yeah, but you're pretty mm-hmm. gullible, John. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> almost as gullible. You as can Patricia, find me right. under the letter G. Yeah. <laughs> this is very good. Can we? Can we move to? If Turn it's okay page. with you, do you have other people you want to talk about before I go to the Jack Benny program? No. Um, oh. We should talk about Burgess Meredith. Okay. Oh, okay. And, and, and it's an interesting story because it was a, at a convention where Hyman Brown had come out to be with us for the weekend. Well, no, but but this started because we had Hyman Brown on Yesterday USA, I think. I can't remember why we had him. I don't remember how, but we had him on Yesterday USA in May, and... Then I called him to see if he'd be willing to come out for Spurdvax convention in October. But the idea wasn't came, he out here at PBB. Well, no, he came. We met him first at PBB in 1998, when he was honored, and then in '93, somehow we 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 had him on Yesterday USA. I don't remember how that happened. This is Harmon was, Brown you're talking about. Yes. Okay. And that was in May, <clears throat> and from that, we decided to 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 ask him to come out to Spurdvax in November. Okay, so now now go ahead with the rest of the story, John. But that, this was, that's how it all came about. Okay, and he wanted to do a show, one of his newer shows that he had done, called, I think it was We the Living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he said, can you guys get for me a couple of my favorite people, Burgess Meredith and Jeanette Nolan? And we said, sure, because uh, we had contact with them both. And they, Jeanette Nolan had been with us previously at Spurdvac, and we... We'd, she was on our mailing list, so we knew how to get a hold of her. Burgess Meredith, I think, had been with us. I can't remember now. No. Maybe he, not. He had not been with us, no. Somehow or another, we got a hold of him. Maybe through another radio person? Probably. That's usually the way it works. So we called them both and told them that Hyman Brown was interested in doing this show, and he wanted them to be a part of it. And they immediately said, sure. I mean, they didn't know who we were. Burgess didn't know who we were. But the fact that Hyman Brown had asked was all that was required. So Hyman got us the script, and we typed it up and so forth, and we uh, we scheduled the event at, at the uh, convention. And this is November. So we're almost into November now, and the fires come along. Oh, and boy. just rip through Southern California into L.A. and Orange County. Now, normally, you know, they'll pick one or the other, but not both. But this year, they got them both. Yeah, the fires almost... Burgess Meredith lived in the Malibu colony, and I think he was spared, but it was close. 
But the Malibu colony has had all kinds of trouble with fires in the past. A lot of famous people live in that area. And Jeanette Nolan lived in Laguna Hills, in Laguna... In, in, yeah, Laguna Gale. Yeah, yeah. And her home was destroyed. Oh. She was I able to get out with some photos, I think, and maybe yeah. a few things, but not much. And that's shortly before the convention. This Is a, is this after John died? McIntyre? Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I thought. I think so. Uh, yeah, I think so. He had died a few years before that. And we never got him. We met him on a few occasions, but we never got a chance to talk to him. Right. I wish we had. Yeah, so do I. And anyway, look, go ahead. So this is 1993, and so we'd gotten their permission to come and do the, the show. We'd gotten the scripts together. We told them, okay, show up at a certain time for rehearsal. And they did. I can't, yeah, they both had been driven because they're both, you know, well into their 80s, so I don't think they're driving themselves anymore. No. So they arrive at the hotel, they come down to the stage, and there's a major problem with lighting, not for younger people, but for elderly people and blind people. But we didn't count because we were reading on the stage. So Larry did everything he could to get the hotel to to enhance the lighting because um, during the rehearsal, you, you know, during the, re the recording, you could tell they were having problems. They were stumbling through the lines. So, I mean, they literally brought in huge lamps uh, in order to make it more po more uh, possible for the, for the actors to see. Um, and uh, so... It worked. They, yeah, it, it, it worked pretty well. I mean, it worked fairly well. They got through the rehearsals okay. And then Burgess said, you know, I think I'll go up and lie down and, you know, call me later on. I don't think he even made the dinner, but uh, Dan Hapley, who does a show here at the USA, was uh, an integral part of, of Spurred Back and worked a lot in terms of setting up recreation. So he, he essentially assigned himself to Burgess to help him do whatever No, he I think I asked him to. Okay. He and I were talking, and I said, we're going to need someone to follow him around to make sure he gets where he needs to be because, uh, uh, you know, he, he was very frail. And, and forgetful. What? A little and forgetful. forgetful. And yeah. we, were, we were wondering if he was going to be able to pull it off. We really were, especially based on the rehearsal. So he stayed up in his room and skipped dinner. We went down. We did the dinner. We did the introductions and so forth and so on. And Dan brought Burgess down, and, and Jeanette was down there. And Jeanette had been with us before, so she, was, she knew what to expect. She just had a lot of trouble reading as well. So we got the lighting taken care of, and they went on stage and did that, that recreation and a light clicked on, not literally, but I mean, it clicked on, and they—it was just the adrenaline was flowing. When they got in front of that microphone, it was just as if it was 1940 again, and they were doing a radio show. It was wonderful. That's amazing. And the lighting didn't seem to be a problem. They—that was just amazing the, the kind of job that they did. It, it sounds like. Um... Oh, gosh, I don't know. Arthur Rubenstein, not Arthur Rubenstein. Hmm. Maybe. One of the musicians, one of the great maestros, was so frail and so old that he needed help standing up when he got out of a chair, but as soon as the music started, it was like electricity was, was through him. And it, mm -hmm. it sounds similar to what you're, you're describing to me here. Yeah, it, exactly the same. A little sidebar story, Patricia, which I think you would love, because I know how much you love the woods. Uh, John McIntyre and Jeanette Nolan were uh, 
one of the favorite pe- people who uh, producers and directors love to hire to do radio. Orson Welles used them a lot. But, uh, but McIntyre had a rule of thumb. He liked to live out in the woods. He liked to live in Wyoming. So they always earned enough money, just back in the 30s and 40s, and then they would go hide for months. And then I guess when they, they're getting low, they come back in time, and all the directors and writers re- rehired them. They but would they, hide in the woods? Yeah, they would hide in the woods. They had a home in Montana. In Montana. I love these people. Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry I missed knowing yeah. them. Yeah, and in fact, I remember, I don't know if you guys recall, uh, Carlton Moist told a story, or maybe Jeanette t- called a story one Sunday morning at Spurvac, that Carlton was, you know, was in a period that he needed some time off. And he was going to go to the Mayo Clinic, and he drove from California uh, to Montana and stayed with the McIntyre, and he got his best nights of sleep he had in years up in the cabin. So he didn't need to go to the Mayo Clinic. He went home. I'd forgotten that story. Yeah. Good story. See, the woods, that's the place to be. I've got this magical treehouse in my brain that I (laughs) want to live in the woods in a magical (laughs) treehouse. Talk to me about the Jack Benny program and Gunsmoke. Those are two of your favorite shows. What made Jack Benny such a great comedian? John? Well, everybody says timing, but, I mean, he just... I don't know, it's hard to explain. He was just... He he was funny, and his writers made him funny. And... You know, it's funny. Exaggeration. He was. I don't think he was. He was funny. Not that funny. He was. They they say he was kind of serious. He wasn't funny. Funny. He could say some funny things, but he wasn't overly funny. But but he was able to do a lot with what the writers gave him in terms of being able to convey that uh, to people listening on the radio. He. A lot of it was the writing. So much of it was the writing. And. Uh, and the people who surrounded him, he made them succeed. And that, in turn, made him succeed as the star of the show. Now, he was one of them who made a successful transition to television. And he had good staying power on television as well. How did that happen? What did he have in his, um, in his makeup that allowed that transition to happen? I think it was a lot, a lot of it had to do with the fact that, that people could identify with him and his character, and loved his show so much that once they got hooked on radio, they followed him to TV. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, it had to be funny still, and it had to be a good show, you know, because if it went downhill, people would recognize that, and they wouldn't watch. But that's, and he also knew when it was time. He continued doing radio for five or six years after he moved to television, but he knew when it was time, and so did the major players, George Burns, Milton Berle knew, Red Skelton knew, uh, and and they all stayed in radio for, for a while, but all of them also made the move towards television at the same time. George and Gracie had a very successful run on television, yes. and Gracie was just as ditzy in that role as well. Mm-hmm. Remarkable people. Yeah. Gunsmoke, what made that such a successful program? And another one that went to television. Writing, I think, primarily. Primarily writing, uh, and also you could identify with the people, you know, Matt 
and Chester and Kitty and Doc. Well, and it's the people who the people who played the parts also were compelling people. Well, their characters were believable. Mm-hmm. And so the audience that had been established in radio moved right along into television. And they were consistent enough in television uh, to keep the audience. If they had done something like Gildersleeve. Gildersleeve was wonderful in radio, and people loved him. But Gildersleeve, the, the people behind the scenes, changed his character in television, and it didn't work. And so it only lasted a couple of years, and and then they canceled it because the, the people who were making the decisions goofed it up. Yeah, uh-huh. Willard Waterman said he hated the, the Gildersleeve character on television because they made him a skirt-chasing kind of a, not evil, but kind of a leering, he's going after women with big chests. He said that's all they did every uh-huh. week, and he said it was, he didn't even want to play the part. And they, that's so unfortunate that they would allow uh, this to happen based on the track record of that ra- of that show, which was yeah. a pro- prolific radio show for years. Like they took uh, a kind and loving uncle who was an eligible bachelor and turned him almost into a dirty old man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not a good thing to no. do. No. Not with Leroy's uncle, that's yeah. for sure. Golly. Oh, you changed. <laughs> you know, yeah, Leroy got arrested later on. <laughs> Did he? Yeah, he said, no. Stay out of the bars. Stay out of those bars, Leroy. No, he did not get arrested. He got he got arrested uh, in the radio show. Yeah, he did. That's was, true. There was yes, one show where he got arrested there. But I think the reason for his arrest was a lot more tame uh, on the yeah. radio than what what John had envisioned on television. It was didn't happen. <laughs> was I can't recall what it was, but it was um, you know something. I don't know. He was throwing rocks at a window or some mm-hmm. you know something benign yeah, yeah. by today's standards, anyway. Back then, it was terrible. Tell me about the Smithsonian Magazine article that you participated in, I guess. Or were you cited in it? No, we were blind. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> were you C-I-T-E-D in it? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Yes, we were. How Leonard, Leonard Malton got, a, got in touch with us somehow. And a, but a lot of other people, too. It wasn't just us. No, yeah. it was a bunch of people. A lot of well, tell me, tell me about the article. Walden mentioned it the other day and said it was one of the best um, in, in in the medium or about the medium. I think I still have a copy of it. I I, I still do. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. I think, the, uh, in my opinion, uh, any articles in magazine, I think the best one on old time in the last forty years. And when was when was this published? About eighty six. Eighty six or eighty seven. And and it. It was incredible. Those people, and I assume this is true with most magazines, but boy, those people were so thorough. They would check their facts based on interviews that we had done, and then they would call back again and check and recheck. And I'll bet you we probably got four or five calls from those people just making sure that what we said was correct and quoted correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, I can't remember. Jerry Hendigas was cited. We were. Bob uh, Lyons and Barbara Watkins were, I think. Uh, pretty almost positive, but it's been so many years. I don't want to leave somebody out. It was uh, definitely a West Coast slant because right. that's that's the way the article was written. But it boy, it got spurred back hundreds of members. Really? Result, this, now, this, was, this was about old time radio per se, or it was about the people today who are involved in old time radio. I think both. It, it was a dual spin. Okay. Yeah, and it all it dealt with several organizations, including Spurdback. Uh-huh. And it enlisted at the end sites for uh, uh, and names and addresses, etc. And and I mean, 
that the phone which we had in our home for years, the Spurdvac phone, rang uh-huh. and rang and rang, maybe as much or more with Smithsonian than anything else. Wow. Although the interview, whenever we would do Chuck Shaden's show, and we did it many times, uh, the phone rang like crazy. So Chuck had a heck of a listening audience as well. He was in Chicago, is that correct? Yes. Okay. I'm practicing here. Walden I'm, I'm, is teaching me all I know here. To tell the truth, tell me the story about to tell the truth. Were you actually on the show? Yes. Yeah, Talk about I that. Was. John wasn't. I was. Uh, they called the Braille Institute in 2000, I believe, in May or June of 2000, and said, we would like somebody who is good on his feet, quick, and can lie. And I fit all you of those qualifications. You just proposed to Melinda at the time, right? What's that? You just proposed to Melinda at the time, and she believed you, right? No, it was before <laughs> I proposed. Oh, okay. Um, but so they called me as a result. Uh, I don't remember. Maybe it was Melinda. Maybe it was somebody else who put them in touch with me. Most likely probably Melinda. And they called me. It was NBC, actually, uh, who called me because I think they were helping to syndicate the show. And they said, we have a premise. And the premise is that there is a blind guy who is a beauty contest judge, a real judge who's blind, uh, up in Canada. And we, we need three other people to round out the panel besides him. And three people? Is it three people on the panel or four? I can't remember. Whatever. Uh, I think there were four on the panel. Okay, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and so they, they they brought a bunch of people in, um, including four of us, the, the actual blind guy, and another guy who was a guide dog trainer for one of the schools for the blind. Mm-hmm. And, and he wore glasses. So he was the only real-sighted person, I think, on the panel, I think. The, the rest of us were blind. And... Um, so what they did was they said we want to do this as a premise, but we need to have we need to do a session here where the the judge will actually talk to us about how he is a judge, what he does as a judge. You guys can ask questions, and then they ask questions of us as if we were all the 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 um, beauty pageant judge. Right. They had to figure out which one of you was telling the truth. Right. Okay. But, but they asked. They wanted us to get into the scenario, so they uh-huh. asked us questions, and we, they wanted us to respond as if we were the judge, as well. Right. And it was cool. It was fun. And then eventually, um, some weeks later, we all went to the studio and did the show. And back then, it was brand new. It had not actually aired at all. They were pre-taping episodes prior too. And back then, we got in when it was really cool. Later on, they changed the money amount that you would get. But back then, um, if you fooled the audience, because the audience had a vote as to who the blind judge, beauty, be- the blind beauty judge was, mm-hmm. and the panel had a vote. So if you fooled all of them, then everybody got three thousand uh, dollars. If you fooled one, I think you got less. Well, we fooled everybody. Really? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I didn't get 3000 bucks because taxes come out of that. Yeah. How but many still, votes did you get? What's that? How many votes? You got all the votes? Yeah. I, I, the panel did, yeah. The, uh, nobody guessed that it was the judge. You are a good liar. Thank you very much. 
You're quite welcome. Thank you. That, and that's really married. remarkable. And I'm, yeah, and I'm still married. And you're still married. Did, yeah. um, is Melinda listening? Not now. <laughs> <laughs> she was actually there with us. John She's came out driving the car. <laughs> What's that? She's out driving the car? She is. Yeah. She is, but I, I will tell you that over and over again, and you'll believe me, I think. I know. But, but actually, we don't have the car with us. No, we, we lent it to somebody. Yeah, oh, uh, okay. Yeah, but we, and after that, we went to um, a place that sell one of the best rib, rib places in, in Los Angeles County. And had a great time. I think it was John and I and a friend of ours and Melinda. I forget. There were there were about five or six of us, and uh, it was cool. It was a great experience. And uh, somewhere around, I've got the I have the videotape of it too. I haven't I, seen it in many years, but it was fun to do. I certainly hope so. That really sounds like an exciting opportunity. Yeah, it was. What else would you like to talk about? Are we through your list? Well, not quite, but I, I wasn't going to put you through everything that I had here. I didn't think we'd even gotten through, you know, like a, an eighth of it. Well, we're about two-thirds through. Wow. No about joke, at least. Um, well, that's true. We haven't. Three-quarters. John said we haven't talked about the Rose Parade yet. Well, that's on the list. We have Rose Parade, Vietnam, and Nike. Which would you like to talk about first? Um, well, Nike leads into Vietnam, actually. Say that again. Nike leads into Vietnam. We, we, okay, so let's talk about the Rose Parade. Okay. In 1986, uh, well, let's back up. Uh, prior to 1986, several years in a row, there was a gentleman named Doug Wakefield who lived and worked, I think, in Maryland, who actually broadcast the Rose Parade. He was a blind guy, and they would fly him out. And I, for whatever reason, they decided that that they could find other blind people who could do it and who lived closer so they wouldn't have to spend the airfare. They meaning National Public Radio. So uh, in 1986, we had been doing Same Time, Same Station for six years, and so our program director, Larry, Matt, Larry Shirk at the time, called and said, I've got a note from the Tournament of Roses and National Public Radio, and here's what they're doing, and they'd like you guys to host the parade. And we had no clue as to what that was all about. We didn't know. And he We'd explained, you know, shows. what's that? We'd seen the parade, but we had no idea what right what went into back. A booklet with a hundred and over a hundred equestrian units. Oh, no, a hundred. 100 uh, entries, which were comprised of floats and equestrian units, etc. And so people would read them to us. What a lot of work to do, because we didn't have computers back then. Yeah. And said so they would read to, on, to us on tape, and we would take the tape and divide the entries up. He might take odd numbers, and I might take even, whatever. And we would write all that stuff down, or we'd write down the stuff that we thought would be interesting. But we write a little more than we needed in case floats broke down, etc. We wanted to be overly prepared. And uh, then we went to the float building pal palaces and talked about how we were going to do what we were going to do. And the first year, there was all kinds of coverage because the media found out, perhaps through the Tournament of Roses, I don't know, that two blind people were doing the parade. And so uh, we got interviewed by a lot of people from CNN to 
all of the radio and uh, all of the TV stations in town, quite a few radio stations. Uh, Good Morning America wanted to interview us and then have us actually get into the float and drive it and so they could take pictures of it. But then their insurance people found out about it and said no. <laughs> but but they said, what's the big deal? You know, you're inside on the bottom of the float. You can't see all communications that you get as a driver come from other people telling you to turn left to right because you can't see where you are in the bottom of the float. You're next to the street level. So they said, why couldn't a blind person drive a float? You were better prepared than anybody else. I think so. I could have made an extra right turn, you know, and headed for the sidelines and watched those people scatter. And missed the garage on the way. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Gee, Mom, park a little close to the float, why don't you? Right. <laughs> but that never happened, unfortunately. The insurance, you know, raised its head, and uh, we weren't able to do it. Well, for John and Larry both, why did they ask blind people? Why, would, why were they recruiting blind people for this particular role? Well, I think... We, we broadcast for National Public Radio. It was carried by several stations, but also a lot of radio reading services where blind people would be listening. Uh-huh. And we need to describe radio reading services. Radio reading services are small radio stations generally, um, usually subcarriers to the main channels, usually. And they provide specialized programming for blind people, newspapers, books about various things. And so you can, you know, if you want something... You want somebody to read from the LA Times, they've got people who will do that for you, etc. Uh-huh. So that's what that is. So they have the Rose Parade t- uh, not only on regular NPR stations, but also uh, into a lot of the radio reading services as well. And they thought that our approach as blind people might be a little different. It might be something worthwhile for other blind people to listen to. As it turns out, a lot of sighted people listen to it as well. Because it wasn't really going to be more, it wasn't going to be as much of a visual description as an audible description, right? Because we felt the floats, we felt the flowers, and uh, and we were able to convey what it felt like to blind people who never had that experience. So, the, the, you you had um, you're talking about tactical experiences, but you used all of the senses that almost no one else uses for that kind of right. an event. And mm-hmm. we found out. Quickly, the first year when it was 35 and 36 degrees during the early part of the parade, that our fingers would become desensitized to Braille and oh. freeze up. Oh. We, we never realized that that would happen. We didn't think oh. about it. And so the first year, you know, we're rubbing our fingers on our pants to, to build up heat. Yeah. And I think the second year, our program director who was there with us brought a heating pad, which worked out really well. Because when one wasn't reading, the other was warming his fingers and vice versa. Smart. So it worked out really, really pretty well. Yeah. Well, how could you know that in advance, for goodness sakes, never having done it before? Yeah, yeah, we did not know. And we never did, you know, we never did talk to the guy who did it before us. I don't know why. So you had no training camp? You had no entree? It was just what We went in blind. What? (laughs) See how gullible I am? (laughs) Not only am I gullible, I create my own gullible moments. Yes, you do, and that's what's so cool. Oh, isn't this great? You yes, know, I I'm, love it. I'm, your, I'm your personal Gracie Allen with a brain. <laughs> this is good. Okay, nice. You should run for president. I think. Oh, yeah. It's already for been president? done. You, are you going to vote for me for president? Sure. Yeah. Very cool. You're going to be a lot better than the guy we got in there now. <laughs> do I do I want to be president? Not on a dime. 
Um, Nike. You did a Nike ad, and that translated into an opportunity that involved Vietnam. Michael Jordan was coming out with a, a, a shoe line of a line of shoes, and uh, we had done some a little bit of voiceover work and had done some stuff for a group called Media Access in Hollywood. And they called us and said that there was going to be a shoot for a Nike commercial. They needed blind people to take part. And the idea was for blind people to shoot at a basket, prominently showing Nike shoes. And so we went to... And they gave us, they literally had us wear these very expensive Nike shoes in the commercial. And we would just basically shoot baskets and they would film. And this went on for hours. It seems like days until somebody made a basket. Yeah. <laughs> then it got dark and we really were in trouble. Uh, but but the, the, the director who was filming the commercial was a German director. And that's, that's the main idea for him was he did, he did the commercial so he could make enough money so that he could do what he really wanted to do, and that was to make movies and documentaries. Mm-hmm. But but there's no money in movies and documentaries, so you do commercials until you make enough money to do that. And so we had fun. We had a lot of fun doing that. We we enjoyed ourselves. We jumped around a lot and ran into people and you know shot back. Our, our our uncle came with us, and he would literally stand under the basket and clap or make noises so we could tell pretty much where the basket was. And he told us how high it was, and we had a pretty good uh, idea of where that was, and we would basically shoot. And, you know, we would come close, but it took a while for the took ball a while. to win. But eventually, yeah. eventually the director would interview everybody who was there, and he started. He interviewed us for, I don't know, five or ten minutes, and I don't think any of it ever got used. The commercial that we saw never aired, but we still well, got paid for Some people said it. they saw it. What? His name was Ralph. Um, Ralph was his first name. Ralph, and he... He talked to us and he said, you know, I like you guys. I would like to work with you again. And he said, maybe the time will come in the future. So he took, he took our name and address. And the commercial never aired, but we got paid for it, which was fine. It was good. It was, I think it was like scale. I think it was like 237 bucks. Yeah, they gave us a copy of it too. And about two years later, maybe three years later, maybe three, um, he emailed John because he took our names, addresses, phone numbers, email, and and he said we're we're doing this documentary called Poem, and the focal point of the documentary is to take people and put them into situations and see how they do. Now, for the, the, the whole movie was a series of vignettes, about twenty or twenty-one. Everybody else's vignette was scripted. And they, you know, they, he hired actors and actresses. But for us, we and weren't... This was, this was vignettes where you would have people just shortly after birth. You'd have young children. You'd have middle uh, teenagers. And eventually up into the middle age. We'd have elderly people, middle-aged. So, yeah, so, so... All facets of life. Right. For us, he wanted us to go to some exotic place. And I forgot where the first choice was, but that didn't work out. So they finally settled in August of 2001, or maybe it was July, on Vietnam. And they said, we really want to see you in a strange city. We want to see how you adapt. Now, they had planned places for us to go. They had to because Vietnam being a communist country, they had to clear it with the government 
the government wanted to know exactly what we were going to be doing at all times. In fact, there was a representative for the government with us the whole time we were there shooting. And so we had to get our shots. We had to get visas. We had to get everything. And, and they flew us to Vietnam. And I almost didn't go because I got to the LAX airport, which is about 45 minutes from my home, and I found out that I had left my tickets in my drawer at home. Oh. And my younger brother, now they had picked us up in a car and taken us. My younger brother, we called him, and he was not happy, but he uh, found the tickets for me, drove them out to the airport. And luckily, we were on an international flight, so we had plenty of time, but it was just, you know, way out of his way. But he did it, obviously. And uh, we flew to the nonverbal flip-off. We flew to Hong Kong, and that took, um, what, about 12 hours? We had a nine-hour layover, and then flew another hour to Vietnam and stayed there a week. And it was terrific. It was awesome. And we basically just went around the city. They, they picked various shots, and we basically filmed them in, in those situations. And, and the director would be, it wasn't a lot of, of audio. It was a lot of video. So uh-huh. the director could tell us what, we, what he wanted us to do. The first thing he wanted us to do was, in, in Vietnam, they don't have cars. They have mopeds. It's, it's, it's a third-world country, and they're too poor to have too many cars. Uh-huh. And so this the first, was nine years ago. So That was nine years ago, but, but that's probably still the way it is in most of the country, I would guess. But in any event, so there was no traffic patterns. There was no nothing. You would just, mopeds would just go, and they would watch for people. And so he said, all right, I want you guys to walk out into the traffic. They'll see you. They'll move. And you. And we're walking with our canes, so they saw the canes. But they didn't know what the canes were because they didn't know what, who blind people were. Blind people back then were either institutionalized or not seen. We were certainly the exception um, and, because they, they didn't know what to do with blind people. But they all watched out for us, and he said, I'll be watching. Don't you know, just come towards my voice. And we did, and we never got hit. Nothing. Mopeds don't go that fast, but still, I'm sure they go fast enough so that if they were to clip you, you'd go flying. But but we did that. We got our hair cut there. Uh, We even had some lady wanting us to um, marry their daughter and take her to the United States. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. We walked in rice paddies, uh, which was really pretty cool, out in the country. Did you really? With buffaloes right there nearby, yeah. Now, that was a little different because it was all uneven ground. We couldn't use our canes because it wasn't flat. It wasn't uh, uh, gravel. It wasn't even paved. Yeah. It was dirt. It was dirt. And so we had to rely on the on the director because there was water on either side of us from the rice paddy. And they wanted to see the buffalo, so the... The, the owner of the farm was behind the buffalo. You couldn't see him, but you could see him pushing and prodding the buffalo to the stay in the shot in the water as we were walking alongside the buffalo towards the director. And the director had left up a little more, good. Well, keep walking, good, left. Make a little bit of a right turn, there you go. And so he literally was, we were literally going on trust. And we did, and it worked out really well. Apparently that shot turned out really, really nice. It sounds like a wonderful you, experience. There's a water park water in Vietnam, water. too, that John went one to. Of the, one of the, yeah, we, we visited a water park, which is something you would not expect to see in a country like Vietnam. But, no. But there was a, a, literally a water park there, 
and they did a lot of filming of us on the on the slide. So now, when you're talking really water park, you mean like an amusement park? Yeah. Oh, for you know, when you ride the slides and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah, cool stuff. Never would have guessed it. Mm -hmm. Okay, when when you measure the water buffalo against um, finding the gas pedal and the brake, which one was the more dangerous situation? Probably the brake. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know because um, you know, certainly the water buffalo if you landed on you could have hurt you. But uh, I don't know. I I don't know which was more harrowing. Probably, I'm thinking maybe the water. The, the the rice paddy might maybe because um, there was more time to wonder uh oh what happens if yeah. yeah you also were working with people you had not been in sync with you were right. learning and they were learning too right exactly wow talk to me about future what do you see in your future well um, I work for Marriott I still I work for Marriott now for ten years and for the last three from home. And I expect to be there for quite a while. What are you doing? Sitting here talking to you. Area. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry. You know, when you ask those kind of questions, I know. I, I think to myself, should I? Sure. And why then I not? Think, why not? <laughs> um, what do you do at Marriott? Marriott. Marriott has um, probably. In fact, we do have. We have thirty. We had forty-two at one time. Now we have thirty blind people working, making reservations for Marriott worldwide uh, or on certain desks and in order for Marriott reservationists who are blind to work they need scripts to be written so that they can make the reservations with the system that Marriott has in place uh, without those scripts I can guarantee you that you can't make the reservations but Marriott in 1999 uh, hired a group of people and they hired a guy who actually wrote scripts for them and uh, I got hired in 2000, and and I told him, as we were getting out of training, I said, I don't see myself doing this job of making phone calls for five years. Uh, I would go nuts. I mean, I enjoy talking to people, but I can't, I can't, I'd have to do something else. So he remembered that, and when it was his time to leave the company, he remembered that, and he said, are you still interested in programming? And I said, yeah. I didn't know what, what I was going to do with it, but I, I, I was willing to learn. And along about two, three days into the training week, the corporate people said, uh, I don't think we're going to have him programmed. That's not fair to ask somebody who's never programmed before to do the amount of programming that's necessary. Because even though the, the, our screen reader works with the reservation system, it's still a third party. And, you know, there are still issues. There are always going to be issues. Um, so they got one of their people who works as a programmer at Marriott to actually do all the programming. And, and and I gave him some manuals in terms of how to work with JAWS because he'd never worked with JAWS before. JAWS is our screen reader. Yeah, okay. And then and then I wound up doing all the testing of the software to make sure it worked. And I also do some training, and I also do some writing of modules as it relates to JAWS so the blind people know which hotkeys to press, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever we do upgrades and things like that, I'm there as well. I'm sort of a resource support person. And I worked at our center in Santa Ana until it closed in 2007, or 2008, I guess it was. And now I work from home. And I'm now busy. you don't have to put shoes on. Well, most people would think that. And there are there were a couple of occasions a couple of years ago when it was 100 degrees out here when I wore a T-shirt and shorts and nothing, no shoes, no socks. But generally, I dress up every day. I wear a button-down shirt and pants. 
you do the whole, it's I going do. to work. It just doesn't happen to be in somebody else's place. That's right. I always, I always get dressed. I've done it. And I still, unfortunately, also wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Because <laughs> I used to have to wake up at 5 in the morning when I was, when I was commuting. Uh, so your body is, is yeah, in yeah. tune with itself still. Because John, even though it was how... only maybe a 35-minute ride, using uh -huh. public transportation, it was two hours up and usually three hours back. So I'd wow. walk in at 7.30, 8 o'clock sometimes. Yeah. John, you're with yep. Disney? I thought, yeah, I, I thought I, we I... dropped the call again for a second there, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was, uh, about the time Larry went to Marriott, uh, I hooked on with Braille Institute in 2000, and uh, Melinda, Larry's fiance at the time, and now his wife, had been working there for about uh, about 15 years, I guess. She's uh, been working since 85. Yeah. Hmm. So I I hired on as a receptionist, and she she literally, you know, taught me the ropes. And when she wasn't working, I was a couple of days a week. And it worked out pretty well. You know, we did. It was a lot of fun. And a couple of years went by, and then their their braille instructor um, changed career jobs and moved along to work with the vocation uh, rehabilitation so they needed a braille instructor and you know i'd grown up reading braille but and i had never thought about this until that time arose i i didn't know any of the rules i just knew that i knew how to read it but didn't know exactly how to 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 uh, describe what i was doing to anybody else i just knew what i knew uh-huh and they they asked me if i would teach braille and i said sure and it was only after I began to look at the books that I needed to use that I would figure, you know, I don't know what the rules are. I just know that I know what I know when I have to read. And so I had to go back and learn those rules in, in order to teach people. Wow. And I did that for about a year and a half. Uh-huh. And Braille has, Institute has a career services department, which is certainly was certainly more active then than it is now. And they had been talking about getting some of their, their people hired with some of these organizations. And they'd been talking to Disney for quite a while. And Disney had never hired anybody before, only because they didn't know what it entailed or what to do. And so they, they went to Marriott. Disney went to Marriott and talked about the, the successes that Marriott had. And Marriott said, whatever you do, don't hire anybody by the name of Gassman. Um, we already made that mistake. Yeah, we made that mistake before. Don't you make it. Um, <laughs> uh, You're joshing me, right? Yes. Oh, just, okay, just a little. Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> You're going to hear a click, and it's not my brain. It's my phone. <laughs> but, so, so Mary, you know, Disney said, you know, to, Disney told Braille, you know, we'd be interested in hiring a blind person, but send along somebody that you think might do a good job. And Braille recommended me. Okay. I'm not so sure it was because they wanted to get rid of me or as opposed to whether they, you know, it was their opportunity to see that this program would work. But anyway, they hired, they decided that, that, that I should be the person to go over there and, and uh, interview. And I did. And uh, I guess they, they had liked what I had, had, uh, had answered in terms of the questions. Um, so they hired me. I was the first blind totally blind person ever hired at the Disneyland Resort, or actually, any I, I think anybody at the Disney company, I don't think anybody else was ever hired before me. There was a, a partially sighted guy who was hired about the same time, but he later moved on to another company. So really, I'm, I've, I've been there seven, a little over seven years now. And uh, we basically, at the time that I was hired, 
the the reservation system was proprietary. I mean, it wasn't a Disney system. It was high, it was uh, uh, used in Las Vegas and a couple of other places by other travel agencies. But we also used it at Disney. But it had to be scripted pretty heavily because it was all DOS based, um, not Windows based at all. So uh, if you were to put turn your computer on and use the screen reader JAWS, it it just wouldn't work. And so we had to have somebody script the system so that we could use it. And so we made you know we did that and and basically kind of went along day by day to make sure that everything worked properly. And and usually it did, but occasionally there were problems. But we we got around them and time went by and we had seven or eight or nine other people hired and uh, a couple of years after I got into, into Disney I they, they needed somebody to train the other blind people to use the reservation system so I since I'd been there long enough and they thought that I knew what I was doing uh, I began training everybody and uh, long about last year I guess they decided to move to a to a, uh, a Internet Explorer based system and uh, this would allow those of us who are doing just the hotels and park tickets and character breakfasts to move along and do complete vacation packages, which also meant uh, 30 or 40 hotels in Orange County, 30 or 40 more hotels in San Diego, four or five hotels in Los Angeles, uh, airfare, ground transportation, car rental, other attractions in Southern California, in essence, complete vacation packages. Um, and it was all web-based. So last year they asked me to test the new system with JAWS, and I did. And, you know, the, the, the few errors that came up basically were a result of the system, not necessarily JAWS. There were a couple of things, but not much. It was all – JAWS worked very well, basically. So when we got that taken care of and, and uh, found out that JAWS worked very well with the system, then I began to get uh, – work in terms of the, the, the training department literally did a 10-day crash course and trained me how to train other people, not just one person, but the entire class. Mm -hmm. So I and another trainer who I had been working with for those three or four months, um, we literally trained the other four or five other blind people who had, uh, who had not had any experience in the system. And uh, you know, I got a nice little certificate because of it, and I'm sure it'll look very good on the resume. And uh, now Disney World in Florida is very interested in, in hiring other blind people as a result of what we did, because nobody else has blind people yet hired in the Disney company, or at least not totally blind people. Now, there are some partially sighted people that have been hired in the parks, but nobody else. And so uh, eventually uh, we expect that Florida will hire some blind people, and, and whether they'll consult with me or have me come down to consult with them actually live and direct I don't know we'll see but uh, you know I've I guess I've shown pretty much that uh, that I know what I'm doing and that that I can be a valuable valuable resource and so it's been a good seven years and I hope that I'll be there for you know as long as I want to be and uh, it's a lot of fun you get a chance to meet a lot of neat people and uh, we just celebrated of course Disneyland's uh, 30, I mean, 55th anniversary today. Today's 55? Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's some nice things going on on the websites all about that. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've, I've had a chance to do a lot of fun things and meet a lot of, of interesting people along the way. So, tell tell yeah. them briefly, and the key word is briefly, uh, about GPS. Oh, yeah, because this is pretty cool. Um, 
one of the problems, of course, with, with Disneyland and, and, um, and Disney World as well uh, was that for the longest time, once a blind person got in there, there was no way you were going to be able to navigate the parks uh, because everything is so visually laid out. There's uh, no way that you could find your way around there without being literally with somebody. When I did a Disney cruise with my my uh, former girlfriend at the time, I mean, we, we literally, we went to Epcot the night before and then did the cruise the next day, but there was no way I could move around the park without her because there's no landmarks. Uh, and um, so technology eventually caught up and uh, a guy by the name of Michael May, who is a, a blind guy with some sight, who is, uh, is another story in his own right, um, had been working with GPS for months and months, or for years rather, back to the early 2000, I guess before that even. And he developed GPS, GPS on different, several positioning. different platforms. What's that? You're talking GPS, the global positioning system. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they eventually got it down to the point where they could put it on um, note takers, which look like laptops. And the note takers literally have a screen reader built into them so they can provide the audio uh, information as you move around. And so he's now got this on several different note takers from different companies so that literally you can, as you as you are at a given uh, uh, area, you can press a keystroke and put that point of interest into the system and it'll remember exactly where you are and you can describe what it is. So, for example, at Disneyland, which is now completely mapped with these points of interest, if you're going to, say, Pirates of the Caribbean, when you reach that area where you're in front of Pirates of the Caribbean, you press a keystroke on your note taker and you type in Pirates of the Caribbean main entrance. Boom. That longitude, uh, longitude and, and, and you know, the whole area is right there and it's listed and it, the satellite will know exactly where it is. So as you're walking along, when you get to the front entrance, it'll say, uh, the, the, speed, the screen reader will say, Pirates of the Caribbean uh, 5 feet or 30 feet or whatever it turns out to be. Okay, but that's not what I was getting at. This is cool, but I'm getting at what was announced in the last couple of days. Oh. Because that'll even people who don't have screen readers or note takers will be able to take okay. advantage of this. So, so that's that's what's happening with note takers. But above and beyond that, Disney has now come up with handheld devices, which are they operate with radio frequencies. So you you purchase well, no, you put twenty five dollars down, and that is a refundable deposit at the end of the day, and that gives you a headset. And when you walk up to a uh, an attraction like Pirates of the Caribbean or or any other attraction, it will literally read what's happening on the ride, on the attraction and in the queue as you're walking through there. And now, and then they've got about 13 to 14 different attractions mapped out like that. In Disney World, they've gone a step further and it'll reach here next year where they, with that handheld device, it'll also tell you where you are in any part of the theme park. So a lot of the, the you know, the restrooms are, are mapped. It'll tell you where you are with GPS in terms of uh, uh, restaurants, outdoor ven uh, vendor locations, uh, you know, everything basically in the park. 
so literally you can, I mean, you, while it's nice to be with somebody, you can physically wear this little headset and know exactly where you are pretty close. Uh, you might still need sight assistance to get exactly where you are, but you're within 30 feet, for example, of any given attraction or area they, that's covered. Do they map the parking lots? I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know exactly how extensive it is. So I don't I mean, how does what a blind person. I got it. If a blind person doesn't walk with somebody, how do they get in to the park? Where do, you know? How do they find their way around the parking lots? I would I would think that at least the main points would be mapped. I, I but I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know for sure. People mover on your left. Look out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would imagine that they've got that all handled, but I. I haven't seen it in operation yet, so. Well, that's really exciting that East Coast and West Coast are involved in systems that are going to cross the country. They are, and, and they even have stuff that's closed captioned for deaf people as well on the, on the same unit. How neat. Yeah, it I really mean, that, is. That's so. really neat. Okay, you've got me all hyped about this. I've never been to yeah. Disney World. I, I need to go now. How far you do you live from Disney there? World I, and you live in Florida? I know. I mean, I lived in New York and I never went to the Statue of Liberty either. <laughs> well, if I ever come to Florida, I'll get you in for free. How about that? If, if, if you come to Florida, I'm only four hours away. Okay. Because it'll be, it's about four hours. So I, well, that's I not should, too bad. I should be able to claim that I have been to Disney World if it's only four hours away. True. See, I shouldn't have said anything. No, but that's okay. Tell me some Christmas stories. This is Christmas in July. Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you, too. John, do you remember the Merry Christmas? The Mar we used to do marathons at KPCC. Walden oh, remembers yeah. the marathons. Are you awake, Walden? I sure am. I'm, this, this, yes, you should, Larry. This is, the, this is one of my favorite segments. I can just sit on my bed and listen to you guys talk. Uh, as long as we don't hear... Oh, crunch. Yeah. He did not fall over. No, 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 no. Tell me, tell me about the marathons, and then tell me um, a, a story when you were growing up, when you were kids, or something, a tradition, maybe. The marathon started, I think, in the 90s? 84. Thank you. Marathon, marathon started in 84. And, and I, I, yeah, I guess they thought it would be cool to do a marathon, but I have a feeling that behind all that, the station said, let's figure out a way that we can get our hosts a night off. I wonder <laughs> if these blind idiots would like to do a marathon. I have no idea whether that was the case, but because but, we did volunteer, and they said, sure, fine. But they never said, no, you can't do it. But we would do, eventually, originally, I think there were six hours, and then eventually they went to 12. And we would tape the last six hours, and we'd come in live and do the first six. Um one year we did it all from 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. And, I mean, we were dragging big time the next day. Holy mackerel. That was tough because it was Christmas Eve. Well, I rem and I remember we got off at about – there was one where we got off around 2 in the morning. Yeah. And True. my and my brother and sister-in-law always used to do Christmas Eve at, at our house in Whittier. And, you know, they'd bring – and people would drop by, and, you know, they'd have uh, – tamales and you know all kinds of stuff so we got home around two in the morning and it was still the party was still going strong and so we would oh yeah and eating anything so we that was the year we solicited on the air for pizza <laughs> and, and and somebody actually dropped some pizza by i certainly hope so and then we went home and ate tamales and stuff remember that, Larry? i do remember that 
Do you remember what happened after you went to bed and got up again? I mean, that's a that's a pretty rough. That was yeah. That was a lot of food. Pizza and tamales. Oh, I can't I even we, imagine now. I oh, I think we goodness. had chocolate chip cookies for breakfast and coffee. I think that's. Oh, that's was. okay. Yeah, that was all right. Yeah, that's that's pretty normal stuff. Tell that, me. That um, was that was before I was diabetic. I was like like I'm gonna do that crap now. Are you kidding? Well, you can think about it. Yeah. Well. Oh. I, oh. There's nothing wrong with thinking about it. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> nothing wrong. But I, I can't do it. some of the stuff I used to do. I, I don't know that any of us can. That was long, long time ago when our bodies would react and just deal with some of the stuff we would do to it. When they were a little more friendly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Tell me a Christmas tradition that you either had when you were growing up or you've established as adults. We always used to open presents. That was a tradition which was terrific. Did and you it do didn't it matter. Partic- What's that? Did you do it at a particular time? And was, it New- was it Christmas Eve? Was it no, Christmas Day? we used to always do it at first on Christmas Day. And, and I can't remember why we shifted it. We, we shifted it to Christmas Eve for a while. Um, when we got older, yeah. And Melinda and I will do. Well, it's funny now that now that I'm married, it's like, I've, let's see, how are we going to do this? Because we've got my family, we've got Melinda's family, mm-hmm. and how do we celebrate Christmas? And how do we put it all together? And it it shifts every year because one year, um, I'll have Thanksgiving with my family and Christmas with hers, and then we'll we'll flip it. So on, on during the Christmas, it's always we. You know, talking to the family two or three weeks out, saying, "Okay, how are we going to do this?" You know, I'm gonna we're going to go to somebody's house on one side of the family. We've got to figure out a time and place for everybody else to get together to open presents, and we usually do. Sometimes it's two or three days later. But John, what's the best gift you ever got? Oh wow! Um, as a kid, probably kid. a drum set. Drums? You've got to be Yeah, kidding back me. in 1971, I got a drum set. Oh, grown-up and drum set. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was neat. That was really a lot of fun. I used to play drums a lot uh, and, and probably contributed to the deafness of neighbors nearby. <laughs> and I had those drums for a long time until uh, I was ready to leave Whittier. And then we sold them, but yeah, that was that was a biggie. And the you had them that long? Uh, well, you know, maybe I don't remember now when we got rid of them. I can't remember. Maybe it was after Dad passed away. But I can't remember now. Wow. Yeah, you, I don't think you had them that long. Yeah, I don't remember specifically when when we got rid of them now. But they were the best. They were good. That we got a we, we each got a tape. We got a big tape recorder one year. It was a big. Uh, I can't remember the, the brand name now, but it was a, a a nice big tape recorder. It was an excellent recorder, open reel recorder. But was it was it three inch reels or seven? No, no, seven inch reels. Seven inch reels. And we brought it with us. Well, <laughs> I remember one year it was broken. Somehow it broke. This is like 1972 or 73, and we were going to go on vacation, so we made my dad go pick it up from the shop. We put it in the car with us and took us. It, we took it to Denver. And we we had microphones and extension cords and recorded some of that vacation. And I'm glad we did actually now because you know my dad's gone. A lot of my a lot of my uncles are gone. Some of yeah. them. So we've got pieces of tape with all of those people. And that was we pretty cool. Digitized. 
Huh? You got to digitize that stuff. I don't know where it is. It's in it's in that it's in that part of storage where we still have a lot of our stuff that we haven't found yet. Well, it might be in some of the stuff that I've got because I don't have an open real machine right now, so it could be in here. Oh, that's nice. But but that's stuff that we really need to, to digitize. Yeah. Got to do it, Larry. What was your best present ever? Well, the recorder was pretty cool. Um, boy, I'm trying to think about Christmas presents. Well, one of them was this last year. It was it was Melinda got John and I tickets to a Laker game. And that was Christmas and birthday, because those were not cheap. And we did go. We went uh, in February to a Laker game. And I'd never been to Staples Center before. That was a right. lot of fun. Yeah, that was good. That, that was, was good. Neat. A couple of years ago, um, my brother and sister-in-law got Larry and Melinda and Chris and I, Chris's former girlfriend, um, whom you've mentioned six, six times. Bill, huh? Whom you've mentioned six times now. No, I haven't. Uh, tickets Other to see Bill Cosby. Oh, that's right. Bill Cosby, what, he was at uh, one of the theaters. I'm trying to, remember, trying to remember which theater it was. It was Cerritos. The Cerritos performing Yeah, I guess right it there. was. And this was, yeah, and he and he did a couple hours. He was very good. Yeah. And I, I, Cosby in person, we'd seen him, heard of a lot on television and, and recordings, of course. Uh-huh. But I'd never seen him. It was a great show. It was a good show. I'm, yeah. I'm glad. That's good. Okay, I'm going to give people one chance to call in before I let you go because I have overstayed my welcome here by about three hours. Um, 714-545-2071. Call in with a question for Larry or John or both of them. They are our guests tonight. Um, In your professional careers as radio people, what has been the high point? Wow. Um, there have been a lot of them. I mean, we've been, we've had a chance to do a lot of, of really exciting things. We were at the several star ceremonies when Jim Jordan, for example, got his star. Uh-huh. We were there for that. Uh, we, we recorded, recorded it. Yep. Yeah, we have it. Uh, it's on tape here. Yeah, got that. So uh, that was a major thing. Uh, Having dinner and having an opportunity. Steve Allen, when he was at the convention, yeah. uh, interviewing Gail Gordon. Yeah. Norman Corwin and Burgess Meredith were, and Carlton E. Morse were major highlights. Stan Freeberg. Freeberg, yeah. I mean, we've, we've been pretty lucky. I mean, not just us, but I mean, spurred back in general. We just happened to be available when people were interested in, in participating, and, and it worked out very well. It worked out great for us, too. Yeah. Well, I think it worked out for everybody. I mean, it did. I we mean, were... you have you have shared so much with so many people. These are things we never ever would have even imagined what they would be like without the recordings that you give us. Well, we've been. Yeah, other people have also have been lucky. I mean, we weren't there at the very beginning, but luckily, other people like Chuck Shaden and and the people at uh, at WTIC who did a lot of the East Coast stuff in the seventies. I mean, all that stuff exists, and so. And the cool uh, thing about it is, we 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 became we began we became known in the hobby by a lot of people, and eventually it got to the point where we would build up friendships with all of these people, many of them, mm-hmm. and they began sending us things that they had done, ah, interviews okay. as well. 
Mm-hmm. And and I mean, I'm going. I've still got a ton of stuff to go through that are on cassette that I want to digitize. But there are interviews that other people did with people that either we didn't get or maybe there was a different slant on something. And there's tons of stuff still that we never got a chance to put on open reel or catalog. And uh, so now we're slowly beginning to do that. Now we're beginning. We're taking all the interviews that we have that we did and others did. Bob and Barbara did a lot of stuff that we've got that they gave us, and we're digitizing all that stuff. And Friends of All Time Radio conventions and things, and Spurdvac conventions eventually. Yeah, Ray Bream, Larry King, Raps. all that stuff. And we're putting it on, digitizing it onto the hard drive, so that it can be shared with other people. And as soon as we get Walden up to speed, we'll be able to share stuff with him, and he'll be able to share stuff with us because I don't think. By the time we left, about the time Walden really got busy with Yesterday USA, so I don't think we have much, any, of his interviews, so we need to get those digitized so that they can be shared, uh, and so people can hear them, too. And a website to locate them. Uh, That's that's something that I think we're going to play with a little bit, and I'm going to ask some people. Well, I guess we, well, I've been investigating iTunes on some other commercial levels. Maybe we'll get those up, up, up there. Who knows? Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Yeah, so we'll have to play with that and see. Yep. I am out of questions. I didn't think, Patricia, it was it's... possible. <laughs> oh, there's got to be something in here that I managed to work um, past, but I think you covered. Did we talk about even... the cruise? Pardon? Did we talk about the cruise? I oh, no, we didn't. About the Quince cruise? cruise? Yeah, talk about the 20 cruise, that's right. Don, talk about the Quince cruise. In, in 1986, uh, the L.A. Times did a story on us in the calendar section, about, mainly about the radio show. And it was a real nice article. And, and by the way, show. Patricia, if you found other stuff, if you found other newspaper articles, I'd love to have them. Okay. Because I found some stuff, but there's a lot of stuff that I didn't find on the web, and we'd I, like to get the hold of those, so later on you can send them. I to. will go back and cross-reference, but okay. I'm pretty confident what I found duplicates what you oh. sent later. Okay. So. Okay. You're not out there. I know. <laughs> you need to get a bigger presence. Yeah. Okay, so you've got a, a, a twins cruise yeah. here. John, where'd you go? John? We lost, we lost John? I guess so. You want to call him back? Yeah, hang on a second. All right. This is Yesterday USA. I'm Wong Zhu. That's Larry Gassman. He's going to get John. Hello, Patricia. You can all give us a call at 714 Five four five two zero seven one. We'll be opening up for trivia here in a little bit after Patricia and I take a break. Once we'll again, have trivia. We've got a couple of Fibber McGee and Molly Christmas shows, and I have a question for Walden. Uh oh. Think I remember. Oh yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got one. I'm supposed to have a hard question, a really we'll hard take your question. Take call right now if you want to leave a detail. Oh, thank you, John. Are we there? Not yet. No, not yet. He's looking for oh, John. Okay. Yeah, I just um, got his machine. I'll call him back again. Okay. Oh, maybe he fell backwards. <laughs> I don't know where he is. I don't know what's just, going on. Just kind of fell asleep. Yeah, hang on but, a second. Um, I'll have to go to my notes. I I may have wound up sticking with the question that I gave you earlier this week. Uh huh. Let's see. I asked you that one last week. I've got notes on the computer. Um. 